All right. Welcome back to Tell Me What Happened, the podcast that features folks from all walks of life telling us one childhood experience and how that event impacted who they are today. I'm your host, Jay Rehack, and like you, I've had my share of childhood experiences that have impacted who I am today. Some of those experiences were quite painful, some were pleasurable, but I like to think that whatever happened to me back in the day has helped make me a better person. Tell Me What Happened is sponsored by Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including Susan Salador's classic, One Little Act of Kindness. Tell Me What Happened is also sponsored by LaughSaver.com. Visit LaughSaver.com and record your laughter. We'll keep it for you now and forever. It's free, and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will appreciate it. That's LaughSaver.com. BTW, LaughSaver.com will become an app at the first part of June, so look for it on your Android or iOS phone. All right, today I have as my guest a good friend of mine, a man I've known for many years, Tom Clark. Tom is a volunteer with the Investigative Project on Race and Equity, a former co-host of the weekly Live from the Heartland radio show on Loyola's WLUW 88.7 FM. He's also lectured on media and American culture in UIC's corporate MBA program, working with with cohorts of Chinese health professionals. He served on the steering committee of Network 49, an independent political organization of the 49th Ward in Chicago's far north side Rogers Park neighborhood, where he and his family have resided for over 30 years. Lastly, for over 25 years, Tom was president and co-founder of the Community Media Workshop, now Public Narrative, where he helped journalists and hundreds of NGOs annually improve media coverage of Chicago's neighborhoods. Welcome, Tom Clark. Tom, are you ready to tell your story? Good to see you, Jay. Yes, indeed. When I was in high school, I was part of Young Christian Students, which was a Catholic youth group that would engage in social issues at the time. And one of my dear friends, Roland Radford, is someone who didn't go on to college because he didn't have great grades, in part because he kept going south to Selma and other places for the civil rights movement. By the time we both entered college, he was signed up to be a Marine, and I was at Loyola, having left the seminary, decided to take advantage of their junior year abroad in Rome. And lo and behold, one Thanksgiving week, who shows up at the Rome campus but my dear friend Roland. Roland had been sent home early from Vietnam after being the sole survivor of two patrols. And for several days celebrating his 21st birthday, he urged me to go home early from this country club, as he saw it, and use my influence to help stop the war. He felt as a Marine, he was limited in what he would be able to do. But as a white guy, I ought to be able to do a lot more than he could. Flash forward, I got very involved. I had been very involved with the Kent State strike at Loyola. And that group who went on to form a commune in Uptown is the group I kind of came back to when I left Rome, found out that they had been planning to do an action on a draft board in Evanston to try to prevent young men from being sent over to Vietnam, a totally immoral adventure by the U.S. government that many of us were spending a lot of time trying to stop and end. In 1971, in April, we poured blood on 501A draft file records at the Evans Selective Service Office, and nine months later, defended ourselves in federal court during a week-long trial where we put the war 
on trial and the war lost. We ended up being acquitted on three of the four counts we had been charged with. The conspiracy count that we ended up being convicted of was later overturned, ironically, on a First Amendment basis because of how we had conducted our action in a nonviolent way. We had learned a lot from other Catholic left actions that had been going on around the country, the most famous of which probably was the Berrigan Brothers in Cantonsville. We were uh, part of a line of direct action civil disobedience folks who stayed around rather than hit and run, which was notably going on with other left groups trying to end the war at that time, particularly the Weather Underground. I mention them because famously Bill Ayers and I have had many public debates over the years about the efficacy of what the Weather Underground did, which I think was to terrorize Americans even more, versus what we tried to do, which was to act nonviolently, to produce an action that would later resonate in a courtroom and would allow us to make effective arguments against the U.S. execution of that war. Three of the four of us defended ourselves, which was a legal tactic that we learned about after the Chicago 15 trial a couple of years before. It allowed us tremendous leeway in the way we prosecuted the war. Yes, we were being prosecuted, but by the nature of the cross-examination we were able to do in the early stages of the trial, we were able to draw out a lot of the elements that we were trying to do. Later in the trial, our grandfatherly judge kind of cracked down a bit, and a lot of the other testimony that we were hoping to do using anti-war activists and others were scuttled. But we were able, through character witness testimony, establish the backgrounds that we had all engaged in using parents and pastors, in my case, as well as my friend Roland Radford in full Marine dress as our character witnesses. The jury made it clear in the media discussions following our trial that because we had acted nonviolently, they felt that the actions, while maybe not justified, certainly did not amount to a violent disruption of the normal functioning of the Selective Service Office. And they acquitted us of the three substantive counts that we had admitted in court. The months between the action and the trial involved a lot of community organizing in Evanston, street actions, a lot of time in Fountain Square, as well as engagement with churches and other institutions to build up a groundswell of support for our defense committee. Uh, I still remember famously United Methodist Church evening featuring Jane Kennedy, who was part of the Beaver 55 that erased napalm files in the Midland, uh, Michigan Dow Chemical Plant. It was emceed by Studs Turkle, who I'd grown up listening to and later became a mentor of our organization, Community Media Workshop. And in fact, we named a, a Community Media Award after Studs. That evening brought 500 people into this church and was really a sign that we had touched a nerve and that we would go forward with our trial with a lot of support. Indeed, we had a week-long evening session teach-ins at Northwestern, that whole trial, bringing in experts like, oh, Noam Chomsky, Ekbal Ahmad, who was very involved with the Bangladesh crisis at the moment. We were trying to establish not just that the Vietnam War was immoral, that the U.S. foreign policy had a lot that had a lot had to change in the way that we approached the world. The Bangladesh crisis at the time being one, one example of that. Most of us were involved in community living at that time, primarily in Uptown. I later in Rogers Park, 
that kind of community, I think, gave us some strength and power, along with a whole slew of unindicted co-conspirators that actually made this whole action more successful. One quick example, during the action, while we waited for police to show up, we had to tell the clerk how to call the police and assured her we would wait to be arrested. I made a critical call to a contact, which then kicked off another whole series of activities outside the four of us. There were three mail drops at different locations around the city to about 500 supporters with our call to action, uh, the statement that we presented during the, the draft board action itself. And again, setting up the basis for a groundswell of support for when the future trial that we anticipated would actually take place. Winning that trial was not something we expected. Individual resistors at the time were still getting five-year sentences for tearing up their draft board. We got one-year sentences, which we never ended up serving because about two years later, we went on appeal, a First Amendment case for the conspiracy count that we had been convicted of was overturned. That is my story, except that in the years since, it's been amazing to see how many people's lives we affected that we didn't even know about, including most recently when I posted a mini documentary about our action on Facebook, an absolutely overwhelming response from colleagues who didn't know about this chapter in my life to young men who were in that draft board and never understood why they never heard from the draft board again. So we are still hearing 50 years later from people who don't believe they'd be walking this earth, much less forming their own families because of our action back in April 1971. I have no doubt about that, Tom. No doubt that you saved a lot of American lives, which is a beautiful thing, but also a lot of Vietnamese lives. And I think that is also obviously a beautiful thing. I'm hoping that you actually do wind up writing a book about this because I think it's still relevant. I know it's 50 years already on this, but looking back on it, can you tell me, I think I have a pretty fair idea, but how do you think that event, that trial, the experience, the idea that you might spend a year in jail, et cetera, how do you think that impacted who you are today? I remember driving home with my parents shoeless because blood had poured on the shoes and the FBI had confiscated them. And they're going, Tom, how could you do this? How could you break the law? And I said, I was just following what you taught me. Mm-hmm. They've been involved in fair housing work in Oak Park and River Forest. And I saw this as a natural progression. My dad had taken me to a Martin Luther King rally uh, at Soldier Field and where we marched on City Hall demanding affordable and fair housing for the city. So I, I felt like I had roots that I was building on or trying to grow from. And indeed, several years later, when I was in a little blue streak, my parents were right there supporting me because even they came around to understanding that maybe I hadn't quite ruined my life. For my (laughs) parents, they felt that I had short-circuited my career and my potential to be whatever, a lawyer or something else. I had decided not to be a priest anymore, and they were fine with that. But, you know, I I was destined for bigger things, and now I'm a convicted felon. You've ruined it all. Well, as I found out over time, perhaps I got steered in a little different direction because I was a convicted felon. But as a middle-class white guy, I was able to survive what perhaps other people would not with that kind of record by engaging in the nonprofit community, first with affordable housing and later with citywide organizing and ultimately with the community media workshop to help other groups tell their story better. So I think that work, which was always trying to bring 
underrepresented voices into play and into public so that we weren't always just hearing from official sources. It grows out of the work that I was doing in high school and college, trying to directly impact the end of the war. We learned a lot about media relations, about public speaking, about engaging the skeptics and bringing them around. Not always 100%, but a lot of them. And I learned the importance of presence and speaking one's mind, whatever the particular situation might be. I love it, man. And I, I got to tell you uh, real fast, because we're almost running out of time, but I did have Bill Ayers on this show uh, a few episodes ago, maybe. Uh, and the contrast that you're talking about is a profound one, because I do believe that everybody's trying to figure out a way to end a war that they thought was unjust. But you, you and your cohorts definitely went the Martin Luther King way, which was nonviolent and it was not... It wasn't a secret mission, like you said. It was very uh, public, very uh, civil disobedience oriented, where you you stood around and waited to get arrested for your actions. And um, I, I've always been, I was a big fan of Martin Luther King, of course, still am. And um, I consider anybody who can go through nonviolence, be nonviolent to be heroic. So did you ever, have you, have you um, when's the last time you talked to Bill Ayers? Have you... Uh, well, it's been a couple of years, although we engage occasionally on Facebook when he does one of his treatises. Um, you know, <laughs> so we, we've agreed that we're in different spots, and um, I'll leave it at that, because a lot of our action and the framing of it and how we did it was a direct reaction to hit-and-run kind of activity that wasn't just Weather Underground. There were other people, in the, even in the Catholic left, that were doing some of that, but I discovered the power of nonviolent civil disobedience. The ability to speak truth to power is tremendously enhanced when one puts oneself in jeopardy because you're already throwing off uh, the opposition. You're doing what? You're going to do what to your life? And it kind of levels the playing field so that you can engage in a different level, on a moral level rather than a practical, pragmatic level, which was the argument at the time through all the presidents that waged that war, was that, you know, we had to be practical here about what's happening over there and stop it. Well, it was amoral what they were trying to do, particularly the way they tried to do it. And we can see how that region of the world is today with, without our presence as it was for 15 or 20 years. I, I do think one of my struggles in doing the book is trying to figure out how to speak to the importance of nonviolent disobedience in this time and era, uh, the tools are different. With social media, one would think you have a far better chance of communication, but there's so much clatter out there, it's really hard to break through. And I think that we were very deliberate in what materials we brought into the draft board that we could later use during the trial, uh, what we said during the action itself, how we engaged the police. One of the two cops who reported walked in holding up a peace sign. And when we asked if we could pray, he said, as long as you don't destroy any more property, you can do whatever you want, but you are going to be arrested. So even in that engagement, we were breaking down barriers in a way that, of course, a lot of people in a police situation like that would be just far too nervous about stepping out the wrong way or worse. We used our privilege, as I look back on it, to speak for firmly and strongly to the powers that be and 
Yeah, we saved some lives, not only American lives, but I believe a lot of Indo-Chinese area lives as well. Yeah, how about uh, the, your soldier friend? Did you, have, you, have you run into him? Is he still alive? He is alive, and we have talked briefly, but not the interview I've been hoping for. I tracked him down. He was a DCFS caseworker. He came back from his four years and went to UIC and got a degree. And then we were pretty much out of touch for many years. But I tracked him down and discovered he had been a father of the year in the south suburban area that he worked in and discovered, ironically, that he's living in countryside hills. Great, great. What's his name again? Roland Radford. He was a big influence in my life. Well, this is a big shout out to Roland Radford. I'd like to thank my guest, Tom Clark, for telling that powerful story. Thank uh, Roland Radford for motivating it in some ways by asking Tom to leave Rome and go back and try to stop the war. So thank you for coming on the show, Tom. It's great to see you again, Jay, and I, I appreciate the time. All right. Well, that's our show. I'd like to thank Tom, of course, but also our sponsors. Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including I've Got Peace in My Fingers by Susan Salador, and of course, LaughSaver.com. Look for that app coming out in June. That's LaughSaver.com. LaughSaver.com. So I'm going to end this show, certainly in Tom's honor, with Susan Salador's classic, I've Got Peace in My Fingers. Until next time, this is Jay Rehack asking you all to please stay safe out there. And try not to hurt anybody. I've got peace, peace, peace in my fingers. Watch what I can do. I've got peace, peace, peace in my fingers. I'm gonna shake hands with you. I've got peace, peace, peace in my fingers. Watch what I can do. I've got peace, peace, peace in my fingers. I'm gonna shake hands with you. I've got words, words, words in my head. Watch what I can do. I've got words, words, words in my head. I'm gonna talk things over with you. I've got words, words, words in my head. Watch what I can do. I've got words, words, words in my head. I'm gonna talk things over with you. I've got love. Love, love in my heart, watch what I can do. I've got love, love, love in my heart, I'm gonna give some to you. I've got love, love, love in my heart, watch what I can do. I've got love, love, love in my heart, I'm gonna give some to you. I've got a peace, peace, peace in my fingers, words, 